chapter 3. John chapter 3, our text this morning, the first 15 verses of this chapter. Hopefully you had a chance to read that first word on worship. I write that every week to try to give you, as you're preparing, a, a preview both of the sermon, but also how the sermon relates to what we put together for our worship service. And what I try to note there in that first word on worship is that our scene here in John chapter 3 is the first of two dialogues that Jesus is going to have. And uh, and there's some differences with one key similarity. Of course, there's differences here in John chapter 3. What you have is, is a Pharisee, one of the rulers of the Jews. And he's, he's got a name. He's a man whose name is Nicodemus. Uh, if, he, if you will, he's a, he's a high insider. But when we get to chapter 4, and Jesus dialogues with a Samaritan woman, a racial other, a woman, doesn't even have a name, He's actually dialoguing to a down-and-outer. But whether you're a high insider or a down-and-outer, both Nicodemus and the unnamed woman needed the same thing. They needed Jesus. And really, that's the case for you this morning. You may be a high roller, an insider here in Memphis society. You may be a down-and-outer. doesn't matter. The one thing you need, you need Jesus. And God helping us, that's who we want to give you this morning as we look at John chapter 3 together. But in order to see this, we need God's help. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we say with the old gospel song, you can take everything else, Lord, but give me Jesus. Lord, we desire to see Jesus clearly from your word this morning. The only way that's going to happen is if your spirit comes. That's what this passage teaches us. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Open our eyes of faith that we might see King Jesus and so see the kingdom of God and so know salvation. Do your work in our hearts and lives, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it doesn't really matter where he is. His government always knows where to find Ethan Hunt. Of course, you know that name, Ethan Hunt, from the Mission Impossible movie series that that was built off of the TV series from the 60s. Ethan Hunt was the leader of the Impossible Mission Force, the IMF, which was an independent, top-secret spy agency used by the U.S. government. And and each movie, like like the TV show that preceded it, really began when the government leaders found Hunt and delivered the Impossible Mission, your mission, should you choose to accept it. And these impossible missions, they always seem to require ingenuity and courage and moxie. And we discover by the end of the movie that, well, actually, the mission impossible really actually was possible, at least for Ethan Hunt and his team. That's actually really different from the passage before us. Because as we come into this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus... We actually find ourselves confronted by a true impossibility. A a true impossibility. Because three times in different ways, Jesus tells us, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born a second time. And so if we're going to start again, if we're going to know genuine renewal, genuine change, genuine transformation, that's not something in our power. It's not something we can do by, by going to the self-help section at Novel Bookstore or, or by listening to the latest podcast or watching a YouTube video. It's not something that we're going to necessarily find or discover on our own. Now, if we're going to start over, if we're going to be born again, it's actually something that's impossible for us. That which we most desperately need beyond us. That's what Nicodemus is confronted with here. The opening of this dialogue, it actually focuses on what is impossible. For Nicodemus, he thinks he has a clear idea of what is impossible. And what's impossible are these signs that Jesus is doing. Did you see that? Your Bibles are still open, I trust. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, John tells us, and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, it's pretty reasonable the way Nicodemus is is reasoning here. He's speaking of these signs. Well, which signs are these? These are the signs that Jesus apparently had done during Passover, the sign of the cleansing of the temple, to be sure. But if you look up at the previous paragraph from what we read together, chapter 2, verse 23, you'll find there, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so Nicodemus apparently is one of these. He sees the signs and he believes, at least at some level, he believes that that these signs would be impossible to do unless someone had the hand of God upon them, unless God was with him. Now, there's actually a bit of a parallel here between what what Nicodemus is saying and how he's going to respond with a scene we had earlier. At the end of chapter 1, you remember that Jesus confronts Nathanael. And 
Nathaniel, when, when Jesus speaks to him and says, when I saw you under the fig tree before, before Andrew called you, well, Nicodemus responds, how? He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Well, just as Nathaniel called Jesus Rabbi, so Nicodemus does too. Both seem to attribute to Jesus divine power. Nathaniel, because Jesus saw him under the fig tree. Nicodemus, because he sees the signs that Jesus is doing. And also with both men, Jesus challenges them. Challenges their understanding or what they think they understand or what they think they believe. With, with Nathaniel, Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, you'll see greater things than these. But here in John chapter 3, Jesus is going to con- confront and challenge Nicodemus on what is actually impossible. What's impossible, Jesus is going to say, is not the doing of the signs. Rather, what's truly impossible is salvation. That's what he says in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, perhaps you've read this passage like I have in times gone by, where it seems as though Jesus' response is a bit of a non sequitur. It doesn't seem to follow. Nicodemus says, no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus says, well, unless you're born again, you're not going to see God's kingdom. What? How do these things go together? Is Jesus even responding or is he somehow off track? But actually, the structure of Jesus' reply tells you that he's actually responding directly to Nicodemus and he's challenging him on his understanding of what is impossible. The, the response is actually a parallel. It, it actually forms a cross or a, chias, a chiasm. Nicodemus says, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus says, unless one is born again, no one can see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. You see, there's, there's, a, there's a parallel, a kind of cross that's made. Nicodemus thinks the signs that Jesus has done is impossible, but Jesus is saying, no, what's actually impossible is seeing the kingdom of God. So when Jesus talks about seeing the kingdom of God, what does he mean? Well, we've already noticed how Jesus has been using this seeing language, or better to say, of the Apostle John in this narrative. In John chapter 1, The word became flesh and we beheld, we saw his glory. John the Baptist, as he began preaching, behold, look, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then again, John the Baptist, behold, look, see the Lamb of God. And now here, Jesus says, unless you're born again, no one can see the kingdom of God. These things, I think, are in parallel to see Jesus' glory. To see him as the Lamb of God is somehow to see the kingdom of God. In other words, seeing Jesus means seeing God's rule, seeing God's reign, seeing God's kingdom, because we're seeing God's king. Seeing Jesus means salvation. It means coming to know the true God who has shown himself in Jesus. But, but friends, that's impossible for us. 
It's impossible for us to see Jesus in such a way that we might know salvation. No amount of ingenuity, no amount of courage, no amount of moxie that you might have, no amount of insight that you might drum up is, is going to allow you to see Jesus in such a way that you will bow the knee to him as Savior and Lord. That is something that is actually impossible for us. Unless, Jesus says, unless we're born again. Unless we are born from above. Unless we are born a second time. But, but, but that, too, seems impossible. At least that's how Nicodemus responds. You see what he says in verse 4? Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, how in the world is this impossible thing, being born again so that we might see God's salvation, how is that possible? How can we start over? How can we, how can we somehow get back to the beginning? Do we get inside our mother's wombs? Do we do something physically oriented? It's obviously ridiculous, perhaps even sarcastic, what Nicodemus says. And yet, how often do we try? How, how often do we try to start over, start afresh, somehow experience a new birth through, through some kind of physical transition, some kind of attempt to go back to, to some earlier point in time, some, some better golden age period when we were young and innocent, why is it that, that husbands and wives leave their spouse and they end up hooking up with someone they met in high school, trying to recapture some kind of golden age? Why is it that we all too often will, will select elective cosmetic surgery or we'll get it on or off various fad diets or, or we move or change jobs trying to find just that right physical transition that will bring us a, a true new birth or, or we buy new homes or new cars, new boats, new, new. Uh, sometimes we're looking just for a new adventure and other times we're just trying to get out of a rut but really when you boil it down, all too often we're trying to be born again. We're trying to, to start over again. We're trying to somehow find a, a measure of salvation in this life by going back to some time or to do something new that will allow us to somehow rescue ourselves from the emptiness inside. It's all ridiculous. We know it is, even when we're doing it. The only way the impossible can happen, the only way where we can truly be born anew or born again, to be transformed, Jesus tells us, is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus will reply to Nicodemus by saying in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that last bit, it's a little different, but similar, right? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's really the same thing as seeing the kingdom of God. It's still impossible. It's only possible, Jesus says, if someone is born of water and the Spirit. What does that mean? Why does Jesus put water and the Spirit together in this way? Well, if you read the commentators, they spend a lot of time parsing this out. 
trying to understand what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Why does he talk about water and the spirit? And the most common answer that's given is that water here perhaps is referring to baptism. And especially because in John chapter 1, verse 33, John the Baptist connects water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John says, I'm here baptizing you with water. There's one who is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Later in John chapter 3, specifically John chapter 3, verse 22, you're going to find Jesus and his disciples in the Judean countryside baptizing. And since these two discussions of baptism on either side of this being born of water and the spirit, commentators suggest, well, perhaps this is talking about baptism and the spirit. Perhaps. I don't think so. I actually think that what is going on here is a kind of literary device. The two words are actually working together Uh, If you will, water spirit, it actually points towards a spirit-given cleansing that brings about new life, in which the imagery of water stands in for the work that the spirit does. And the reason I think that is because in the very next conversation Jesus has, in John chapter 4, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, this is what he says, John 4, 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Clearly, Jesus isn't talking in John chapter 4 of physical water. He's sitting by a well and he says, whoever drinks of this physical water will be thirsty again. But I will give water that will satisfy and actually bring about eternal life. What is that water? It's the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one of whom, when the woman drinks, she will come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and actually have eternal life. And I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying those who are born of the water and the Spirit are those who've been brought to new life through the Spirit's own work. They've experienced cleansing on the inside, a cleansing that's able to make us new and fresh and clean. That's the work the Spirit alone can do. I think that's why Jesus goes on in verse 6 to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus doesn't want us to get off track by worrying about water. He wants us to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. What's born of the Spirit is spiritual. And how that new birth happens, how the Spirit gives this new birth, it's a mystery. It's as mysterious as the wind that blows, trying to track it, where it comes from, where it's going. And yet, though it's a mystery how the Spirit works, it's a necessity. For Jesus tells us, you must be born again. So how does the impossible become possible for us? Well, the Holy Spirit works in us. He calls us effectually. He causes us to be born again. And unless that happens, we're simply stuck trying to save ourselves. that, That was Martin Luther's testimony, the great 16th century German reformer. 
His own testimony was that his own attempts to rescue, to save himself, to start over, all failed until he was born again. This is what he said. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was pleased by my satisfaction, by my works, in other words. I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience at this righteous God who punished sinners. When I understood the gospel from Romans 1.17, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again, and it entered paradise itself through open gates. How did that happen? Where Luther was able to say, here I felt as though I was born again. How does it happen that someone turns from trying to rescue themselves by their best efforts to to giving those over and trusting in Jesus Christ? By faith it is that you are saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast, as we already heard this morning in the assurance of pardon. How does that happen? God the Holy Spirit does it. He is the one who does this. He's the one who enlightens our minds. He's the one who renews our wills. He's the one who enables us to embrace Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel. He's the one who takes away our hearts of stone. He's the one who gives us hearts of flesh. He's the one who causes trust to rise in our hearts. He's the one who enables us to see, to embrace, to love Jesus. He does it. And he does this work in us because ultimately it is Jesus who makes the impossible possible. I mean, Nicodemus thought he understood. He thought he understood who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. That's how it begins, this whole scene. He says, verse 2, we know, Rabbi, that you are a teacher come from God. Eight verses after that, by the time he gets to verse 9, his head's spinning. You see it? Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? How can it be that we are born of the Spirit? How can it be that the Spirit might enlighten our minds and renew our wills so that we are enabled to embrace Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel? How in the world can someone put themselves in the way of the Spirit so the Spirit might do this work? That's what he's asking. Perhaps you're asking the same thing this morning. I mean, if God's Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again, and if his work is a mystery to us, because he's the utterly free God, then what hope do we have that we might be born of God? Well, we have hope because of the one who's telling us these things. We have hope because the one who's telling us about the work of the Spirit is the very one who is the Son of Man. He, he speaks of what he's seen and knows. He, he's speaking of heavenly realities. He's the Son of Man. This is the second and third time we've heard Jesus use this title, Son of Man. We saw it at the end of chapter 1. Jesus is the Son of Man. That's a royal title. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. It it speaks of, of one who's been given authority by the Ancient of Days, by God the Father, to rule over the nations. And what Jesus says is that he is the Son of Man, and he is the one who is descended from heaven. That's what he says. Look at verse 12. He says, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, 
by descending from heaven as the son of man, Jesus has said, I have royal rule. And we're going to hear this in John chapter 3, verse 31. John the Baptist will say, he who comes from above is above all. Jesus came from above. He descended from heaven. He is above all. But Jesus came from heaven to earth for a very specific task, namely to make the impossible possible. And again, what's, what's impossible? Your salvation. Your ability to see and to enter into God's rule and reign in your life. To enter into his kingdom. But Jesus has come to make that impossibility possible. And he does that by declaring God's word authoritatively. He's the one who tells us of heavenly things. He's the one who bears witness of what he's seen. He's the one who's at the Father's side. He's in the bosom of the Father. He's the one who declares the Father to us. He exegetes the Father to us. Chapter 1 verse 18 tells us. He's the one who allows us to know the true God of the world because to see Jesus is to see the Father. And he's the one who makes a place for us eternally in the presence of the Father, in the house of God. And he's gone, he's ascended back to heaven to make a place for us. All of these things are impossible to us. But Jesus makes them possible because he's the Son of Man who descended from heaven. But not simply because he descended from heaven. The old liberal Protestant theology of the early 20th century in trying to separate out because they were disgusted by the idea that Jesus died for sinners and bodily rose from the dead. They tried to separate Jesus' incarnation from his atonement. And they tried to say, no, the incarnation was enough for your salvation. It was enough that God became man for you to be rescued. But Jesus doesn't say that. No, actually what Jesus says is that to make the impossible possible for you to be saved, the one who descended from heaven had to be the one who was lifted up from earth. That's what he says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you were here with us last Sunday night, you heard uh, the, the Old Testament passage to which Jesus is referring, Numbers chapter 21. There we saw that, Jesus, that God's people had, had rebelled and complained against God once again. And the poison, the sin that was within their hearts, it came out of their mouths in rebellion. And God brought the consequences of their sin upon them. The consequence of their poison within that came out was, was poison coming back in. These serpents, uh, they, they were fiery serpents, perhaps because of their color, but also because of the effect of their bite. It apparently brought a burning sensation that was leading to people's death. And as these snakes came upon God's people and brought the consequences of their sins upon them, they became repentant, they confessed, and they, they asked Moses to be their mediator, to stand between the judicial wrath of God and these sinners who were receiving the just condemnation for their sin. And, and Moses did. He prayed to God, and God said, take a bronze snake, a bronze serpent, put it on a wooden pole, lift it up, and all those who looked at the bronze snake and believed in the God who promised that he would forgive sin, they were healed. They looked and lived. That's what Jesus is referring to. But he's not referring to a bronze snake. No, he's referring to himself. This son of man, this one who is above all and rules over all, he descended from heaven so that he might be lifted up on a wooden cross. And the poison and the contagion of our sin, of our guilt and shame, of our rebellion and complaint that's brought upon us wrath and curse and that will ultimately kill us eternally in hell. Jesus bore that on the cross 
He took your guilt and shame. He took your wrath and curse. The poison that's in your veins was imputed to him. It was placed upon him. And for all those who look to Jesus on that cross as their substitute and believe the promise that if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. All those who believe the promise and look to Jesus, they live. They live. Because the Son of Man was lifted up that whoever, may, whoever believes in him, what does Jesus say? May have eternal life. Life from the age to come. Spirit-given life. New life. You will be born again. We've already heard that in John's gospel. To all who, those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Do you see? Jesus makes the impossible possible. And so the question this morning is, have you seen him? Are you trusting in him? Whether for the first time or the thousandth time, we're going to sing in a moment, I need you every hour. From when you come to those days where the worst thing you can possibly imagine happening happens. Who's clinging to you? And to whom are you clinging? Are you clinging to Jesus or are you clinging to some other thing, some other attempt to rescue yourself? Jesus here calls out to you, turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Are you trusting in him? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do need you every hour. We need you every minute. We need you every second. For all the various things that comes into our, come into our lives, we th- sometimes believe we are invincible, that we are, have the ingenuity and moxie and courage of an Ethan Hunt able to get out of any impossible situation. But Lord, you bring us into those very situations to remind us that we need you and we must be born again. And the only way that happens is if you send your spirit and cause it to be so. So Lord, please do your work in our hearts and lives this morning. And may we look to you and run to you and so live. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymnals. Let's turn together number 674. As I've already told you, this great gospel song, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. Let's stand together to sing number 674.